Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. I had been thinking about talking about Miles Davis on the podcast for a long time. And about 10 days ago, I looked up Ashley Kahn, who wrote a book called Kind of Blue, Miles Davis and the Making of a Masterpiece. I hadn't realized at the time that today, the day we're recording on February 25th, there's a new documentary about Miles Davis on PBS called Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool. We have Ashley Kahn with us to talk about Kind of Blue and maybe to talk a bit about Miles in the documentary. Ashley, thanks very much for joining us. Hey, guys. It's a pleasure. You wrote this book like 20 years ago. I think I read it the first time 10 years ago. It was republished a couple years ago in a new edition. Is that correct? That's correct. And over there in the UK, it's just come out again on uh, Granta. Oh, okay. Yes, I bought the Kindle version, and yes, it was on Granta. I think the previous version I had in paperback, which I couldn't find, I had bought from Amazon US at some point. In any case, the the reason this came up is a few weeks ago, I was thinking Kind of Blue is the album that people own if they don't own any other jazz records. And I was trying to figure out, are there any other genres where there's a record like that, that you've only got one record of the genre that's so indicative? The only thing I could think of that comes close, if you go back a while, is Glenn Gould's uh, Goldberg Variations from 1955. But these days, there's no... There's no overarching one album for rock or blues or folk or anything like that. Yet Kind of Blue still stands as the one album that people have if they only have a jazz album 60 years later. That's true. That's true. You know, I should add to what you're saying that, you know, the even the concept of an album is starting to fade away, you know, in the way that people listen to uh, music and streaming and playlists. I'll link to our very first episode of this podcast where we talked about how we went from songs to albums and back to songs. It's true that Kind of Blue came out just as the LP was gaining prominence, didn't it? Yeah, it was uh, it, it it was riding the wave of the time, both with the technology and with the format wars that had been going on in the fifties, and the progression of high fidelity. The idea of like creating these incredible studios that would uh, uh, put forth a soundscape that was both accurate but also reflected the, uh, 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 you know, the, the technology possibilities of the day. German microphones, um, wider and wider tape, uh, etc. So um, it was, you know, the right recording at the right time. And it had an incredible, uh, you know, uh, run. Still is having an incredible run, as you're pointing out, as being that doorway that everyone uses uh, to get into jazz or to get into Miles, uh, if they're going after Miles Davis specifically, or they just want great kind of cocktail music. You know, it, it works on so many different levels because it's so damn accessible. Yeah, cocktail music, I've heard people say that, and it kind of demeans it slightly to, to suggest it's background music. Yet, just like Brian Eno's Music for Airports, you can listen in the background and the foreground. You can do that with Kind of Blue. That's right. I mean, I think that, you know, we're coming from a generation. I mean, you guys and me all, all seem to be about the same, you know, uh, same age. And, and that is that music, you know, for us was 
hugely important. And it was, um, you know, I'm sure in your high school and college experiences, whoever was in your playlist or in your record collection kind of determined who you were. I see that a little less so these days, that the kind of uh, judgments that are made according to uh, what you're listening to, what genre you're listening to, who you're listening to within that genre, isn't as important as the fact that you're engaged in general. It's uh, the, you know, the, the criteria has changed. I think I first bought Kind of Blue when I was about 16 or 17, and it was like, I don't know jazz and I want to get a jazz album. So it really was that that gateway drug. And, you know, now I kick myself. I grew up in New York City. And if I had only known someone who was into jazz back then, I could have gone to all those great jazz clubs in the village and heard all these music. I mean, I could have heard Bill Evans live. And I, I regret all of that. Fortunately, we have these recordings. Um, but jazz for at least my milieu, was something wet that no one listened to more than a couple of albums. Like, I had Kind of Blue, and maybe someone had Time Out, and Time Out was like, ooh, that's really out there. And maybe someone had a Coltrane album. But unfortunately, the the genres didn't cross, whereas now young people, I have a son who's 29 years old, genres don't mean anything to him. He'll listen to punk bands, and he'll listen to, you know, electronic bands and other things, and we don't have the same divide that we had back in our days. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was saying, that it's a playlist generation as opposed to albums. And so it's more the tastemakers, you know, on Spotify, etc., that are kind of determining the way that, you know, ears are pointing uh, for this generation. But there's a point you just made uh, about, um, you know, you wish you had gone out to jazz clubs. And that that's this kind of um, disengagement from live music that I see happening a little bit. And I'm kind of distraught more by that than uh, the genre, you know, um, uh, change that's going on. Uh, the idea that music is something that, you know, you... Uh, you get off your laptop and this new generation uh, is kind of um, missing out on a huge uh, level of experience. You know, now they use terms like immersive experience. Well, hell yes. I mean, music is something to be, you know, in, in, engaged with in a live moment, you know, and for me, a lot of jazz doesn't even begin to come close to what that experience is like. As if you're comparing recording to live, it's got to be live. You've got to be in the club. You've got to be up there. You've got to see them, uh, you know, the musicians working the instruments. You've got to feel the vibe of the room. You've got to uh, understand the feedback loop of how important it is for artists to meet audiences face-to-face and what happens and how the music becomes, uh, you know, an almost magical kind of um, experience at that point. And so I urge my students, uh, you know, who are 18, 19, 20 years old, that, uh, you know, you've got four years of kind of free living, you know, in, in, in a major urban c- uh, city here. And there's so many musical possibilities every night of the week you know catch as much of that as you can yeah you're teaching at nyu nyu is in the village it's like you're minutes away from wonderful music venues although are they still like that as because even 
even around Miles' time, well, even in the 60s, they started becoming sort of tourist attractions. I grew up in Queens, so I was what we called the bridge and tunnel crowd. And those people, they'd come in the weekend, and they weren't like the real village people. What's it like now down there? The real village people. I love that. <laughs> Well, the real people of the village, not the band, the village yeah, people. Yeah, you know, I, I can't help but think about, you know, YMCA and the fact that there's well, yeah. probably about three versions of it on the road, and one of them is probably called the real village people. You know? <laughs> oh, you mean the, the band that's gotten together and is touring as a tribute band with one original member, um, the guy in the right, hard hat. No, 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 he's <laughs> actually the nephew of one of the original members, you know? But what's it like? Do you still have the same kind of live music scene in the village? Well, I, you know, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I think that every generation has their own specific experience that reflects what you're saying. You know, that's, well, back in my day, it was a little more real. It was a little, little more authentic and the audience was more homegrown. But I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the same challenges that any 18 or 19-year-old would have, which is having enough pocket change to even get into one of these clubs when they probably that's their food budget for the whole week you know um, that's that's the same concern so what I try and do is just create one or two evenings where I can get them in for free or at a reduced rate uh, you know and, um, and and create the situation so that they can at least get that first bite you know yeah Okay, so let's talk about the recording of Kind of Blue. I mean, first of all, I can't help but think when I listen to this album that it's a five-movement symphony, that while the songs are different in tempo and everything, that they just flow together in such an extraordinary way that here are a, a half a dozen musicians that get together playing music for the most part they'd never played before, and they pretty much nailed it on the first take of almost every track. It's as close to perfect as you can get. How did they do this? Well, to understand Miles's thinking and what he was trying to do, uh, you just go have to go back, um, you know, like a year before to um, uh, the soundtrack that he did for the uh, um, movie Elevator to the Gallows, where he created this situation um, in the studio. It was actually a radio station. Um, but they worked all night on um, trying to match up the music that they were performing with the various scenes in this kind of weird French reflection of film noir um, that's actually not as good a movie as the soundtrack is. It's probably known more these days for, for the soundtrack. But the, what happened in that studio kind of... Um, um, allowed him to develop this idea of bringing in minimal instruction and minimal structure and minimal ideas, maximum emotional content, um, allowing the, the canvas to be as empty as possible so that he could get the most immediate invention and um, uh, allow the musicians to really reveal who they were musically. You know who, what, what their musical identities were, um, and that's you know the whole jazz ideal in a nutshell, right there. The thing I I think is is really interesting about this is that with the exception of I think one piece, the musicians had no idea what they were going to be playing. In fact, even Miles didn't have any idea what they would be playing even as early as the day before. He just he decided on on the instructions. I think what do they call it? direction or instruction? Um, 
like hours before the studio time started. And that that's just incredible. Well, that's that's how he had done that that amazing film soundtrack. Yeah. And so it taught him and it had, you know, kind of put inside his repertoire now an idea. And he had already been working on the idea of minimizing uh, the the harmony, the 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 use of different chords, and that chordal kind of slaloming that that is bebop was a totally different aesthetic. So he was moving as far away from bebop as one might think was possible at that time within uh, within the jazz world, with the idea that you're going to stay on a chord or you're going to stay on a harmony for a much longer time. And you're going to use stuff like Dorian mode, you know, which uh, was what So What was about, because it has a certain feel, a certain emotional signature to it. So he's really deep inside the music, but trying to open it up and clarify it so that there's a lot more room for individual statements. And at the same time, you know, he's he's got it swinging. You know, he's got that uh, the interaction between the musicians where they're feeding one into the other, like the handoff from John Coltrane to Cannonball Adderley on So What or All Blues are amazing moments, how one kind of comments on the other. Um, And so that that, you know, that kind of magic you can hope for and you can plan for. But not often does it happen. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was the right idea at the right time, and especially with the right musicians. It's an all-star cast of musicians. Other than Miles, it's Cannonball Adderley and John Coltrane on sax, Bill Evans on piano, and Winton Kelly on, what is it, Freddie Freeloader, Paul Chambers on bass, and Jimmy Cobb on drums. And uh, I, I mean, reading your book where you talk about the before and, and how they prepped and how they worked with Miles, it's clear that he knew these musicians and trusted them enough that he felt confident going into the studio and taking this kind of chance with them. If you listen to the soundtrack for that French movie, I think Miles played with what, was it Barney Willen on saxophone, but he didn't know the other musicians. So it's essentially Miles Davis with a backing band, whereas here, Miles Davis hands off to the other musicians, and they're all going, and everyone has almost an equal part in this. That's right. I mean, you know, he takes this idea, he goes, man, if if I was able to create this kind of vibe with musicians who I was only working with for about a week at a, at a small club in Paris... There was also a Dutch gig that they had on that week. But, you know, with musicians, there was basically a pickup band, as you say. You know, imagine what might be possible if it's with my A-team back home in New York. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned about a handoff in So What? And there's this one moment... There are bits of music for me where there's like a note, a chord, a, a riff that just, just sums everything up. And for me, it's in So What after you get – first of all, I, I love the way So What starts with this sort of amorphous almost orchestra tuning up sound before the bass comes in. Then you get the main theme three times, and then you get this bit where Miles plays a high note, then drops an octave. And on that second note, you get this – um, bass bomb and cymbal crash, and right there you can just tell that everything is taking off, that everyone's in tune. Yeah, it's it's the the timing, the uh, the feel of it, and the way that everyone locks in together. I mean, that's 
you know, that's great jazz, but you could also say that's that's great music in general, is that, um, and this is why I try and impose this uh, um, uh, idea of live, because this this is the kind of stuff that can't be scripted. Or you can you can try and script it, but you know, laptop technology and the way that music is uh, made these days, it's 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 very challenging to find anyone who can find that. That's one of the reasons why you know someone like um, uh, um, uh, uh, Jay Dilla is so uh, uh, revered within the hip hop you know world is because he was able to create this kind of breathing that's inside the music and that idea of how the band expands and kind it's almost like they're losing each other for a moment but then they suck in together and boom they're right there at the right moment all together in tune and the and the whole you know and with that cymbal crash from jimmy cobb just just as miles's solo is starting on so what what an incredible album opener that is because you're right. Yeah. It's, it's very kind of loose and, you know, and, and, um, and disparate, you know, at the beginning and you have this dreamlike kind of feel that's Gil Evans, by the way, who wrote that, uh, yeah. that introductory part. And then, yep. you know, it locks in. And when that band locks in, it's like watching a great basketball team. Suddenly, like everything goes bang, 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 like, almost by you know um, uh, by plan. But then you realize, no, they're improvising as much as a great jazz group is. And, and but that's what's amazing. Across two sessions, a month apart, five songs. Each one was the first complete take. They did a second take of Freddie Freeloader. That's the only outtake from it. You know, I can imagine an A-team of jazz musicians sitting around and, okay, they'll do two takes of one song and three of another. But these guys, they nailed it on one. Uh, was Miles that confident on the playback? He's like, that it couldn't get better? Or did he just consider that this is the moment we've captured and we don't want to do it again? Uh, both. Both. You know, I think that what it was was that they needed to get the head right. They needed to get the introduction right. So there are a lot of false takes, um, false starts, sorry, um, and alternate. There is one complete alternate take of Flamenco Sketches. but um, Yes, Flamenco Sketches. I said Freddie Freeloader before, sorry. And that's on the CD releases yeah. and streaming. You can hear the second. But they used the first one on the original album. Exactly. Um, and that whole sort of first take philosophy, you know, first thought is the best thought, is the kind of thing where, you know, musicians second guess, third guess, you know, themselves so often. And the idea is that in, in Miles's world, while well, he's in charge, you know, so he was not going to hear it from anyone about, well, you know, I think I could have done better on the, you know, second chorus of my three chorus solo or whatever. Yeah, well, do that on your own album. His view on it is that, you know, he wants it as fresh as possible. Yeah. You, you mentioned Bill Evans, and in your book you talk about how Bill Evans kind of wanted co-writing credit on a couple of the tracks, and he is really important in this album. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a whole nother story within the story. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Miles uh, was a, a, a bit kind of um, 
I think, dismissive over the years of, of Bill's attempts. And Bill himself was really kind of, um, you know, very passive in the way that, um, and he was, and he admitted it himself, you know, that he was that way about the uh, the whole situation. To go up to Miles itself was kind of intimidating, and Miles was his senior, you know, as well. Um but yeah, in the end, he you know you will see um, Bill's name next to flamenco sketches. Yeah, because flamenco yeah, sketches yeah. starts out with the the chords from uh, Bill Evans' song "Peace, Peace." Right, exactly, which is based on some other time from out on the town. You know, so uh, uh, yeah, you know that's uh, uh, Bill's is uh, at, at this point in time. Bill Evans's. Uh, you know, influence and ideas and importance to that album is something that no one argues about. You know, did he get enough of the proper compensation that he was due at the time? Probably less than he should have. Well, he got $67 for each session, didn't he? I think that's what they each got, right? Well, the union, yeah, I think I quote the union standard at that. Yeah. I mean, these guys... Paid on scale. So what about the reception of this album? Uh, it didn't really take off immediately, did it? No, it, it, it sort of fit very well into the flavor of the day, you know, modern jazz being what it was. It, there were no huge radio hits, nothing like Take Five by Dave Brubeck, which was recorded the same year. Um, Miles, you know, was someone who was definitely, however, um, uh, on a roll. Um, he was creating one masterpiece after another and moving from one project to the next and pushing stuff away. Um, you know, but I think the thing is that he went directly from kind of blue to sketches of Spain, which was much, uh, it, it became a hit a lot faster. It was out of the box hit. And it captured the flavor and the, uh, um, uh, the, the, the taste of the time, the idea of the Spanish, uh, you know, bullfighting, you know, experience, etc. was very much a, an early 60s, late 50s, uh, you know, kind of vibe. And they and it locked into that public perception of Miles as being the harbinger of all these new sounds and jazz. Kind of Blue was a sleeper for a while, but boy, did it run a marathon, you know, yeah. and it's still run, you know. What I was thinking is that there's one thing in the book that you didn't cover, and that's the cultural context of the time. And I don't mean around jazz. I mean just around the world in general. Doug and I were both born in 1959. It was a very good year, wasn't it? But this was like a really serious time in the Cold War. The, the Soviets had blown up an H-bomb in 57. The Twilight Zone premiered in September 1959. And, you know, this the Twilight Zone reflects the anxiety of Americans. I wonder how much that played into either the music or the reception of this kind of music in, in Kind of Blue plus the next couple of albums. Well, there's a whole book written about this that, uh, in fact, uh, you can possibly, you know, probably get very easily over it uh, in the UK because it's by Richard Williams. And it's called The Blue Moment. And it talks about kind of blue as this connecting, uh, you know, kind of bridge to uh, what was in the 50s and what would become in the 60s. And he connects it to everything from serial music and Terry Riley and the coming of, you know, Steve Reich, etc., to the Velvet Underground and 
to the idea of living life, you know, um, off of the mainstream, you know, in that sort of in the gaps between, um, you know, the, the, the mainstream experience and the, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, other 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 alternative lifestyles. I just mentioned the, the mainstream aspect of it. And I realize that Kind of Blue is not it's mainstream now, but we will never know the impact that it had musically now i mean it's 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 almost a commoditized record in that sense but what i was thinking is and i've mentioned this to kirk earlier is that a lot of the sounds from kind of blue have been appropriated to the point where now smooth jazz you could you could draw a a direct line from you know so-called smooth jazz right back to that era because it imitates the sound but it it can't possibly get the soul or the heart of it or the or the mechanics of it even but I think a lot of people fell in love with that sound, and 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 that has a lot of heritage as well. Absolutely, I mean, you know, that atmospheric muted trumpet, you know, that that kind of reflects the pained uh, uh, or restrained emotion that that um, you know is. To, I mean, you, you just have to look at any Mark Isham, you know, soundtrack. Where he's actually playing the trumpet, um, you know that he's kind of vibing off of uh, Miles in this period, and Miles himself is almost—he's uh, modeling the sound on kind of blue on what he on the success that he had had earlier in the fifties with the ballads that mostly were released by Prestige. But, you know, that that like I said, that kind of pained um, uh, vulnerability uh, that that comes through in his playing. And yeah, that has become commodified. That has become one of those other sounds within popular music that you hear on commercials and soundtracks. And you know, it's a, a, a what's the word? Synecdoche. You know, you want to you want to get that jazzy vibe. Stick a mute on a trumpet and throw <laughs> that track on your on your on your thing. But but you're right. It's it's a pastiche. It's a it's a it's a watered down version of something that you know where if you really want to get back to the root, um, and you're musically focused and you're musically astute and you care enough to do that. Well, now it's just one click away. You know, you just need that right person or that right podcast. Yeah. <laughs> to <laughs> To, to kind of like, you know, uh, point you in the right direction, and then you get back to the source. To paraphrase something someone once told me, all you need for a party is two people, a bottle of wine, and kind of blue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, the original version of that is all you need for a party is two people in a Barry White album. But <laughs> right. if, if you're going in that direction, I'm not sure it's it's going to be just a party. But uh, yeah, I mean, well, that's the point. Yeah. Um, but so ju- just to finish up, I mean, this is how many times did Miles Davis revolutionize jazz? Post Birth of the Cool, kind of blue, bitches brew. It's almost as if he was never really satisfied with what he did, and he had to overturn things continuously. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he was someone who I think the word intrepid was uh, invented for, you know. Um, He was just someone who always felt the need for surprise. He wanted to be surprised. He wanted to be, um, you know, caught off guard by what music, because he knew what music could do. 
you know, when it was when all the elements were in the right combination, when that right moment was discovered. And he talked about this again and again in interviews, the idea that um, for him, a successful night was just being surprised once or twice that if he was just going through the motions and the band was sounding good and they were killing and, and one, that's not enough for him. He wanted to hear something absolutely new and fresh. Yeah. But you know, what we're talking about is the idea of the music itself and how, how it was received by audiences, etc., is something that did not come out of, you know, some uh, incredible marketing campaign that, uh, I mean, Miles was supported, you know, by his record company, for sure. You know, he was their jazz star for many years uh, on the label, um, and he proved himself uh you know, time and again, being able to like keep up with the times. Bitches Brew is the perfect example, you know, which has just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Um, you know, the, the, the point is simply that, you know, uh, Kind of Blue is a uh, classic because people have chosen it to be, um, because critics have supported it, because um, the music warrants it. And um, uh, and that's how we choose our masterpieces, you know. And I think a, a, a you know good definition for a masterpiece is that the more that you go back to it, the more you learn about it, and the more you learn about yourself, you know. Okay, that's a great way to close. Ashley Kahn, thank you very much. I'll remind listeners the book is called Kind of Blue: The Making of the Miles Davis Masterpiece. Ashley also wrote a book called A Love Supreme, the story of John Coltrane's signature album. And when I emailed you, Ashley, I said, let's talk about both of the books, but there's really not enough time. There's so much to say about either of them that I just wanted to focus on the Miles Davis album. So if you're in the States, you've got this documentary called Miles Davis' Birth of the Cool, which this podcast is released the day after it will be on the first time on PBS. So check it out. And Ashley, thanks so much for joining us. Kurt, Doug, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I think what we'll do now is our next track picks. Kirk, what have you got this week? Often when we're doing a, an episode about a subject, we choose a next track that's totally different, right? But both of us, we've decided to pick a Miles Davis recording. I guess I'm a spoiler about what you're going to pick. Okay. My recording is, I, I would call it an underrated Miles Davis album, but it's not an album. It's called Circle in the Round. It's a compilation of outtakes. Wikipedia describes it as outtakes from sessions across 15 years of Davis's career. All of them, but one had been previously unreleased. So this is kind of like Bob Dylan's bootleg releases. It's not just alternate versions. These are recordings that people didn't know. And they go back from 1955 to 1970. The one track that makes this worth it for me is Cold Circle and Around, the title track. It's 26 minutes long. It's really the first electric guitar Miles Davis, and it leads into In a Silent Way, Bitches Brew, and all that he was going to do in Fusion. It's not a raucous track. It's sort of in between In a Silent Way and Bitches Brew. In a Silent Way is, at times, it's almost an ambient record, some of the bits of it. But this has a beat, and it's electric, and it's a new Miles, and it's why didn't this get released back then between 
you know, in a silent way in Bitches Brew. So you'll find some stuff that's not as good. There's a couple of things from 68 that are okay. The early stuff, 55, 58, it's good for a different miles period, but that one song circling around 26 minute makes it all worth it. Doug? Well, I'm not a uh, jazz fan, really. I mean, uh, of course, I'm familiar with Kind of Blue and I'm familiar with Miles Davis, but Growing up in my house, we listened to traditional jazz. There was no modern jazz. So, you know, I've mentioned before, we've listened to Louie and Ella and people like Pee Wee Russell and even going back to Paul Whiteman and, and Bix Beiderbeck. And that's the kind of jazz we listened to at my house. So I didn't encounter any modern jazz until I actually got to college where I had a lot of friends who were into jazz. But they weren't into Miles either. They were into what was popular at the time, and that was jazz rock fusion. Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, uh... John McLaughlin. Now, at the time, I didn't know that all of those people had Miles <laughs> Davis in common. I had no idea, but I liked their music, considering that I was a blues rock guy. But I mean, I liked that stuff. So going backwards, I found, I, I bumped into Bitches Brew because I wanted to find something that, you know, where do these guys come from? And it was a Miles Davis album, Bitches Brew. And lots of my jazz fusion friends had this album, and so I had an opportunity to hear it a lot. And I, I really do like it, but it's uh, it's not a kind of blue at all. It's totally different. It's psychedelic. It's uh, I, I mean, it even reminds me of Zappa sometimes. And uh, you know the way that Zappa would say, "Here's what we're going to do." He gives some directions, or give even directions during the performance. And, and that's what I started to hear. And, uh, you know, actually, I've heard people compare Hot Rats, Zappa's Hot Rats, with Bitches Brew because it has the same elements. I don't know if the two guys knew each other or ever played with each other or anything like that. But to me, it has a sort of a Zappa-esque feel. I hope I'm, I'm talking about it the right way because I am not steeped in it yet. But that's why I'm going to listen to it again. Uh, I haven't really listened to it at all since college, but I know I liked it in college. It was those Thursday nights. Someone would say about 10 o'clock, throw bitches brew on. And you knew there was going to be like a little, little partying going on. Uh, so anyway, that's what I'll be listening to. Miles Davis, bitches brew. I really like the bitches brew album. It's, it's just two songs on two sides. There's the complete Bitches Brew Sessions re-release, which is um, really interesting because of some of the tracks that didn't get released on the album. But it's just those two tracks, and they've got an energy. I used to, for a while, this would be my go-to music when I would go out to take a walk. You'd get 20 minutes for one track, 26, 27 minutes for the second track, and it would just have that rhythm for walking, yet enough interesting music to keep you on... Like, dare I say, keep you on your toes. One thing I really like is that when you look at the credits on Wikipedia, you can see that Joe Zawinul was playing the electric piano on the left and Chick Corea was playing the electric piano on the right. And you've got the drummers listed as left and right. This is really a headphone album, by the way. It's really important to listen to this on headphones to appreciate the space. But I'm going to put this on next couple of days too. Thanks for the recommendation. This was episode number 170 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, tell your friends about The Next Track on social media. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.